Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking the reasons, the economics and the upside of locating storage with renewable projects. From solving the famous duck curve to making renewables more effective in the grids as we've built them. What technologies are in play? What does it mean for contracts and PPAs? And what might the future hold? Our guest is Brian Knowles, Director of Energy Storage and Flexibility at Pexa Park, the Renewables and Power Purchase Agreement Advisory Firm. Brian has a long career, in fact, a unique career in energy storage around renewables, spanning both in the US and in Europe. I also want to note that we have an upcoming HC Insider podcast live event, this time on September the 14th in central London. Hosted by Onyx Capital Group, we're discussing the future of oil derivatives and who really prices oil today. The panel consists of myself moderating, Greg Newman, CEO of Onyx Capital Group, Savas Manousos, former head of trading at SEPSA, and former guests Kurt Chapman and Tor Svelland, founder and CEO of Svelland Capital. The event is free, but invitation only, and spaces are limited. So if you have interest in coming along and seeing the panel, please do email me or reach out via LinkedIn. If not, you'll be able to hear the panel discussion on a future episode of the podcast. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, Paul. Great to be here. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. So we're talking about utility scale storage and renewables, which is a a big subject, but a key one to delivering on the energy transition. And in particular, we're zooming on co-locating storage and renewables together. Not only what about the technology, the the reason for doing that, but also about the market structure, the PPAs, the commercialization of those projects around them. Before we go too far, you're, you're quite a unique individual having spent your entire career in this. So I think it'd be great for us to hear your, your background in this world. So that sets us up nicely to, to move on to the subject. Actually started my career in energy in the Navy. I was a submarine officer, so nuclear trained submarine officer. And uh, on leaving the service, uh, moved to California, did a stint at uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, big utility there in San Francisco. It did a rotation program with them, and I, I really started to see energy storage as this pervasive theme in, in almost every team that I rotated through. You know, its, its implications to the utility business model as well as the grid. Ultimately, that that convinced me that you know this this should be a a, a relevant field uh, for the the future of of energy and. Managed to join STEM Inc., a uh, early U.S. optimizer in the energy storage space, and really was able to to dive into the technology as well as the commercialization of this idea of energy storage. And from there, joined Cypress Creek Renewables, U.S. utility scale solar developer, uh, started their storage team there, and. Fortunately, had the opportunity to to work on some really innovative projects. Uh, leadership team at the time was was very aggressive about uh, hybridization and, and co-location. Uh, they really saw that flexibility was going to be paramount to the long-term value of the assets they were building. Really fun opportunity to to work there and, and develop all those sites. Now I'm I'm with Pexa Park in uh, in Europe, serving the European markets and, and really trying to import a lot of the the learnings from from that past experience and and help developers here structure their their contracts around their hybridization projects, which is um, obviously very important given given the recent volatility that we've seen in energy markets here. Storage is a hot topic, and, and co-location alongside it is is just as uh, and we'll uh, we'll park the long conversation that we could have about small modular reactors 
<laughs> yeah, we could do another episode unit. on that. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I lived inside of a small modular reactor, so they, they actually already exist. And uh, all, all it takes is uh, you just have to go visit your local recruiter if you want to see one. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so so let's you, you've already highlighted it, but let's let's sort of do the basic run on on why is storage so critical to renewables delivering on the energy transition? Many of your listeners will probably be familiar with how the the energy grid functions, but. You know, just just to give a bit of a, a history lesson, you know, the grid was was conceived and designed around large, stable, central generation, uh, inertial based systems, more importantly. And as renewables have become a, a larger and larger component of the energy mix, uh, we're we're seeing the the you know the volatility that renewables bring due due to weather patterns, whether it be wind or sunshine, that that volatility obviously creates a, a, a challenge for a grid that was designed for consistent central generation. So I think there was always an understanding that eventually we were going to need to solve this volatility situation that, that renewables do contribute to. And, and energy storage has been, I think, a really convenient way to do that. Putting a battery with a solar park or a wind farm seems to make a lot of sense. You can you can store the the excess generation when it's too windy or too sunny, and use it later when it's not windy or or it's you know at night. But actually making that happen, commercializing the the co-location model has, has certainly been a challenge when you're both dealing with a, a relatively new technology in, in that you know battery energy storage systems, as well as a nearly a century of, of a regulatory framework that really doesn't value electrical energy storage. So it's it's taken us a little while to sort of make this intuitive idea a reality, but it's it's pretty exciting to see that it's it's now happening, and you know, we're we're building dispatchable renewable energy projects at scale across the grid. And can you define for us co-location, and what is it specifically around co-location that solves some of these challenges? And I think you know, in our discussions, you raised that famous duck curve in in California. Can you sort of put it all into context? Yeah, absolutely. So co-location, in in the broadest sense, is sharing the same grid connection with multiple resources. In the context of energy storage, co-location of energy storage with renewables, whether it be wind or solar, is just that, is combining a a large battery energy storage system with the, the renewable generation facility. And typically this is done at the medium voltage collection system as it's called, which essentially allows uh, the site to to use one step-up transformer, or GSU, as they're sometimes called. And, and this is particularly relevant because the, the GSU is, you know, not only is it an, an extremely costly piece of equipment, but there's a, a rather significant backlog to actually get one of these. If you, you know, you're looking for a 230 kV step-up transformer, uh, it, it could be a a 24 month plus lead time to to get one built. So when we have an opportunity to reuse common equipment, it it really does have a, a meaningful impact on the project economics. Yeah, and can you just I mentioned the duck curve. Can you you know, it's all over sort of LinkedIn and stuff. Can you help us understand what that represents and and I guess that sort of nails the argument around why co-locating storage is critical to making a commercial success of renewable deployment. Absolutely. So, you know, the duck curve is the the, the famous California duck curve, which, you know, by, by definition shows the the net load on the grid when uh, renewables are, are removed. And uh, it's it's meant to highlight the uh, the impact of of solar. Uh, in the in the California market, and essentially how much load is removed due to how pervasive solar is. Now, what that means for market participants is that 
pricing during the belly of the duck is significantly low and negative in, in many nodes on the grid. And so as more and more solar comes online, it's not dispatchable. It is producing precisely when the sun is up. This causes a distortion in the energy markets and, and essentially pushes pricing either zero or, or negative. If you are building a solar project in a market like Kaiso and you're not co-located, well, now you're bringing an asset to your investment committee that effectively only produces its product when pricing is negative. It's likely not to receive a positive response. And as evidenced of this, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory has this, this great interconnection Q study where, where they summarize all the data from the, the various ISOs and RTOs around the U.S. market. And if you look at that, you, you look at the, the 2022 interconnection requests, 97% of all newly added solar interconnection requests were paired with a battery. So effectively, the, the message has been received by the developer community that without some sort of on-site flexibility, your, your asset is essentially uninvestable. So uh, thanks for that. So, okay, so we've, we've, we've there or thereabouts made the case that, you know, storage is critical for financing projects, for delivering projects, and actually for solving the key issue of meeting consumer demands for power from renewable sources. The next sort of big piece is we've, we've mentioned some of the, the, the technology around sort of making it dispatchable, but a big piece and, and key, I think, to, to, to this audience, we've covered it a lot, is around the battery piece, because that obviously has far upstream effects on, on uh, investments around critical minerals and so forth. There's a range of batteries out there that can provide the solution. Can you give us some sense of what the key attributes are? how that impacts cost, how that impacts reliability and so forth and capacity. What, what are the key attributes? And then very briefly, kind of how does the different technologies stack up against that? And, and, and you know, just give us some of that understanding. I, I think we'll, we'll see a, a few differences between you know, the co-location model and, and the standalone storage model. But, but this, is, this is one of them. And the reason being, you're, you're far more likely to see lithium ion based systems being used in, in a co-located facility. I believe the reason for that is your investment committee that that is governing decisions around achieving financial close on on a wind or a solar asset. They're used to looking at you know, 40 year assets that have very little to no technology risk. Maybe in the case of solar, you're, you're looking at a new racking system or, or maybe a, a new type of solar tracker. Wind, obviously, maybe a bit more complex, but when they're presented with now a battery energy storage system, it, it's far easier to present your reliable, more tenured lithium ion technologies and get that approval as opposed to presenting a a flow battery or a sodium ion or, or potentially even something new like a solid state battery. So from, from my vantage point, the vast majority of, of co-located projects I've, I've encountered will, will use the lithium ion based technologies. And within that, and, and you've done episodes on this in the past, there's obviously an array of, of different chemistry types. It's almost unfair to even consider them all one family, given just how differently they can all perform. But I, I think as a storage project, you should be prepared to have to switch between chemistries, potentially uh, frequently, really just due to availability. So I, I've certainly seen periods of time where every project is pursuing the, the NMC chemistry, the, the cobalt-based chemistries that are, are more common in, in some of the higher performing electric vehicles. Uh, I've seen that completely change recently to LFP systems, lithium ion phosphate, where uh, it's, it's more attainable and cheaper 
and you really don't need the increased density benefits when you're putting these batteries in, in big containers next to a, a solar park anyway. So I, I think if you polled any any developer today, they, they probably have a story of their integrator or, or cell or module supplier telling them at the last minute that uh, they were going to need to change uh, chemistry types. And, and I think that that's likely something we'll, we'll continue to see within this space as well. So what do you, what are they actually, I mean, okay, yeah, so you, you, you're bound by kind of supply chain constraints, et cetera, and there's always, you know, there's, there is this resistance given the community is making these decisions to new technologies, understandable. Roughly speaking, how much do these things cost? And then what is the key attribute they're looking for? Oh, absolutely. So costs have, have obviously come down significantly over the years. You know, when I, when I was starting at, at STEM, I, I believe we were, we were over a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour. So usually, the the metric costs are me- measured in is is dollars per per kilowatt hour or euros per kilowatt hour. Uh, so so well over a thousand, circa 2013. Uh, here we are, 10 years later, and and you know while we have seen a, a bit of an uptake, and you know, our friends at Bloomberg are. are always really helpful in, in characterizing battery system costs in their annual report. I generally say all-in costs for a, a, a battery and a, and a site to be developed under the, the $500 per kilowatt hour mark. And that's going to vary significantly depending on what type of site, what market you're in, what the, the regulatory requirements are, or, or just the, the cost of doing business in a particular market. But that's, that's usually a, a mark we, we tend to look for, to, to be under, for a project to be competitive based on the, the revenue that it can bring in. And what does that mean in terms of, you know, I guess, size of renewable site, overall cost of the storage that then needs to be required for it and i really want to kind of nail how you know how much power can you store and for how long you know in terms of trying to commercialize or dispatch outside of the belly of the duck to yeah use, uh, more layman terms it's it, probably one of the most common requests i've seen throughout my career from from developers is is there a tool or a mechanism that that can be provided to help determine the the optimal size battery, both power and and duration, when it's being paired with with a renewable project? And and after all this time, I I, I think the unpleasant answer there is there isn't, and really it's regulatory artifacts that are the most helpful in determining what size battery you should choose. So if we take California, for example, the Kaiso market, they have uh, the resource adequacy mechanism, which is a way of procuring uh, capacity. They, they don't like to call it a capacity market, but it, it effectively functions that way. And to be eligible as a resource adequacy asset, you need to have four hours of duration at your given power level. So as a consequence of that, most batteries that are being co-located tend to be four hours long in, in the Kaiso market. You see similar effects in, in other markets in Europe, for example. You know, Germany has an a innovation tender program where they give an incentive for batteries that are at least 25% of the nameplate of your solar project or your wind project and of two, uh, two hours of duration. And as a result, a majority of the co-located projects I've seen in the German market tend to be 25% of the renewable nameplate in two hours. So more often than not, I, I do think that these, these regulatory considerations will help decide the, the type of asset you should build. But beyond that, given the capacity factor of a particular resource, that certainly will also help you understand what sort of utilization you may get from your energy storage system. So when specifically we, we talk about wind projects, which in many markets that those are being developed will, will have a, a meaningfully larger capacity factor than your average solar park, 
there we we see maybe you know the smaller power ratios but longer durations making a little bit more sense to help even out their production profile whereas in many markets for solar projects i i've seen projects being sized at a hundred percent of of nameplate on the power side for two to, to four hours of of duration and in really trying to take advantage of of being able to charge as much as you can at the peak of the day when energy prices might be the lowest and solar production is the highest, and then shift that towards hours that are a bit more valuable. Let's talk market structure and, and how how you actually go about commercializing these projects, uh, and in some sense, you know, also how prevalent they are. What is it? What is adding storage? co-locating storage to a renewables facility do roughly to the, the levelized cost of, of energy for these projects, just broadly speaking? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I don't know that it has a, a simple, straightforward answer in, in every market. In some cases, it will have no impact where uh, your, your price of renewable energy will largely remain the same, your counterparty may now offer a separate contract for that capacity itself. So for the, the ability to have the dispatchable capacity the battery can provide, they'll offer a, a, a tolling agreement, you know, which is a term imported from, from the gas industry, but now broadly used within the storage industry, but effectively a, a contract that that's uh, remunerated in, in um, you know, dollars per megawatt month or dollars per megawatt year, effectively a, a, a lease type payment structure for having the battery there and then being able to dictate when and, and how it's used. So that, that's a very common structure actually in, in markets where, where there is no energy market. So you're fully regulated markets places like New Mexico and, and Nevada and Arizona, you, you see these, these capacity type structures that will ride alongside the PPA and uh, the PPA price of effectively will, will still reflect the, the prevailing uh, rates for a renewable PPA. Now, in, in other situations, we've seen where renewables can now offer a shaped profile. And now that shape will command a price premium because it's it's delivering energy during a, a specific period of time. It carries some sort of volume equipment, uh, excuse me, some sort of volume requirement. And if you take that fixed profile type structure to its extreme, you can get to a baseload type contract, which are now the, the more commonly traded products. And your baseload contracts will, of course, carry a, a premium to a, a renewable PPA pay as produce price because now you as the producer are taking on that, that shape risk, the volume risk, the price risk that, that comes with the, the obligation to deliver a specified volume of energy equivalent across every hour. And so now storage can be used as a way to to physically hedge that position from your facility so these financial contracts if you are signing up for some sort of committed shape you may have a a long and a short position depending on your what's called hedge ratio and that long and or short position is effectively settled out in the market and if if the market it doesn't necessarily a, a accommodate the economics of your hedge ratio. That is to say, when you're long, prices are very low, and when you're short, prices are very high, which, which is what we've seen in the Nordics in the, the past few years, then it can be very challenging to, to manage the economics of these, these shaped PPAs. And there is where now an energy storage asset can, can be used to help as a physical hedge to complement your financial hedge. That's a term we, we use pretty frequently. And that can now essentially be, be viewed as, as a way to 
increase the PPA price of, of your renewable project by managing some of that, that price and volume risk yourself. And you're knowledgeable on this because you wrote some of these very first contracts uh, back in the day. I want to continue on this PPA thread and just really unpack it for, for myself and the audience, particularly sure. yourself. Just in terms of a very basic level, if you're, you know, you're a developer of a renewable co-located site with storage, you know, what are your options? You just contract it all out, let someone else manage it. I mean, what, you know, what are the different types of entities that are participating in these and what are their various goals in terms of financial return? Yeah, great question. And, you know, fortunately, I, I think there is a solution for really just, just about every type of, of asset owner. So the situation I, I just described, you, you, you may see a, a more sophisticated uh, trader type asset manager sign up for, for such a situation where they have to, to manage their, their positions within the wholesale markets. And they can now decide, am I, am I using the, the energy storage asset to manage that? Or, or frankly, do I prefer to participate in, in the other revenue opportunities for energy storage, that being the, the, the short-term balancing markets or the ancillary services markets. But we also see contracts whereby you outsource the, the operation of the battery itself, such that you, you hire a third-party optimizer to, to manage the, the performance of the asset. And then they'll sort of take on that responsibility of deciding how the the asset is is best used. So I, I I do think that there's really quite a bit of room to to work with there, and ultimately, the market itself will will help dictate really what what the best path to choose. So I I just described you know, the tolling agreement type structures. You know certainly if you're you're in a regulated market such as you know, Nevada or or New Mexico, there really aren't a whole lot of options and so your your counterparty likely being one of one of the big utilities will really need to provide you that that tolling agreement to to fairly compensate the battery and now you'll need to coordinate with them how how the asset is being used but if we go across the pond here to the GB market where we see a, a extremely nuanced and, and complex network of ancillary services products that energy storage systems are, are participating in. Uh, in in any given day a, a, a energy storage asset in the G, GB market may actually get revenue from half a dozen different market products which which is really re remarkable and in those situations it's now a, a more lucrative for you know, the, the energy storage system, even as part of a, a co-located site, to really be primarily targeting these high-value uh, balancing services products. And there we see a very deep field of third-party optimizers. And one thing we do at Pexapark is we, we work with clients to help stitch together different contract structures. So you may have a a renewable PPA for your renewable project and a separate optimization agreement as they're referred to from a third-party optimizer. And now you, you need to manage how those contracts will interact with one another. We're seeing more and more where the PPA providers will actually sleeve in a optimization agreement within the PPA as well. So this is an ever-evolving space and one of the deals we, we just recently closed at Pexapark was just that, where a single counterparty was able to provide the renewable PPA as well as the optimization services for the co-located energy storage system. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. 
we should say power purchase agreements we previously covered on the podcast. And in fact, actually, a couple of years ago, we had Aaron Lally on talking about the first battery options. Uh, as you say, the GB, the, the British market is, is well ahead on some of these aspects, just the, the complexity of it. The interesting question, well, the interesting question here for me is obviously, you know, and I've seen it from the people's side, that there are relatively few individuals with these skill sets, whether it's battery analysts through to the quant skills that are required to actually predict and figure out pricing and so on. I mean, these are, these are really cutting edge skill sets that are relatively few on the ground. But it sounds like, I mean, is the market stepping up? I mean, is this really sort of where the power markets in these deregulated markets in Europe, in parts of the US, are stepping up to provide these services? Uh, I really think so. And for many reasons, you know, certainly, I think uh, wh whether it's energy storage as a standalone asset or, or co-located, as renewable penetration gets higher and higher, there is a need for more of these assets on the grid. And so you're seeing a, across markets, really globally, a push to incorporate energy storage, reform the market mechanisms to ensure that they're fairly remunerated and, and really helping the industry grow. Circling back to, to co-location specifically, I think another giant theme we're seeing right now is just access to the grid itself. And th this I think is, is such an important issue to stress the interconnection queues or, or the, the planning queues, uh, they have different names depending on, on the market that you're in, but effectively the waiting time to plug into the, the transmission grid is becoming longer and far more costly as, as we move on. And we're seeing in, in the GB market, for example, up to 15 year wait times to actually energize your, your site. Famously, in, in PJM, there's a very challenging process to, to make it through the, the cluster studies and, and get your energization date. And as a result of this, I think if, if, if you want to deploy capital as a, a project developer, I think the, the retrofit space that is looking at your existing portfolio of wind and solar projects and thinking about now making a capex investment there to add an energy storage asset is becoming a, a, a very, very relevant idea. And, and we're certainly seeing that. I, I had the opportunity of, of working on the, the Mustang solar retrofit project. It was a Goldman Sachs owned project in California they had acquired from Recurrent Energy. And uh, I, I was uh, working with a, a team there to, to consult and advise on, on the retrofit process. Uh, let, let, me, let me say that again. So David Fernandez, right, who we've had on the podcast Talking Solar quite some time ago. A proud HC placement. Oh, really? No kidding. I was working with Hyde Renewables at the time, and we were selected as the owner's engineer for, for those sites. So it was a really, really fun project to, to work on. But certainly a, something I, I think is a, an idea that's starting to percolate up here in Europe as well. And again, it just circles back to you either wait 15 years to deploy your capital on, on a project or, or you look to maybe invest in an existing site. So I think that this, this is, that a, is... That's so crucial, just to get that right. This is purely down to the availability of these particular types of transformer and or the permitting, we've covered this as well, and regulatory environment to actually get connected, right? This is essentially physical and legal blocks that are causing these 15-year wait times, which is kind of incredible when you think on the other side that there's so much emphasis from one part of the market to get these things deployed. And then you've got these real roadblocks. Some of them are absolute rate limiters in terms of technology, available, you know, capacity, and others are purely regulatory and legislative. Exactly. And, I, you know, to be fair to the grid planners and the utilities, it's not an easy job right now I, the the quantity of projects that are being presented to them is enormous and uh, i think attrition rates right now uh, again going back to that berkeley study i, I think it's it's about 80% attrition rate and so you have to essentially model the 
power flow of the grid with potentially all these projects that may or may not happen. And so I, I, I don't make light of the challenge from a pure modeling perspective that the, the grid planners have to do here. And then you layer on top of that, many of these sites will require additional hosting capacity of the transmission lines that they'll plug into. And that means building new substations, building new transformers, like you said, building new transmission lines entirely. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And again, I think if you polled your average developer today, everybody has a battle scar from a network upgrades bill that that they've received from the, the transmission operator that uh, vastly exceeds the cost of the project itself and and effectively that you know becomes one of the reasons why they they add to that attrition rate so it is a big issue and it's it's going to to be a big challenge to to solve it as well and i think it's it's one of the reasons why not only are we going to see more retrofits, but when projects are being originated, co-location becomes a, a, a wise idea because it, your your asset is really becoming that grid connection. And if you're just building a solar project there that has a you know 15% capacity factor in a market like GB, that leaves a lot of hours of the year where where your your grid connection this this really coveted access to the grid is essentially idle and i i think that now really starts to drive home well if we we can include an energy storage asset here we can essentially drive more revenue from this this scarce and, and costly asset that is the, the grid connection itself. Because you can draw from the grid at periods of low power and essentially trade around that as your energy management asset, right? That's that's what you're saying. Exactly. But this hasn't all been a rosy story. We spoke about it, this PGM story about how it's gone from the largest storage market in the world to, to now virtually non-existent. Can you just help us understand that story as kind of instructive as well about how difficult and challenging these can be when regulation and markets change as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we really haven't touched too much on on the ancillary services space. And, and you know, it, it's certainly not not because I, I, I don't recognize their their importance and their their relevance to to energy storage projects. But effectively, the many of the, the transmission operators around the world will will have a a series of, of products or tools called balancing services. Sometimes they're called ancillary services, but effectively these are short-term, fast-responding products that enable them to, to balance the supply and demand. You know, the energy on the grid, it needs to be matched. Supply and demand needs to be matched at all times. Otherwise, we, we lose frequency control and, and therefore we have these reserve products that enable the grid operator to either dispatch or, or in, in other cases, charge energy to shed it from the grid and, and help maintain the frequency of the grid. Every every market might have a, a slightly different term for them. You know, in GB, this is you know the the dynamic suite, dynamic containment, dynamic regulation, dynamic moderation. In other markets, they call them primary frequency control, secondary frequency control. And, and so ultimately it's a network of, of tools the grid operator will use. And one of their key characteristics is that to participate in them, you need to be able to respond very, very quickly. And batteries are very successful at being able to do that. And often to the point where, where the, the products are exclusive to energy storage assets due to their ability to instantaneously charge or, or, or discharge. And these markets will often uh, pay a significant premium. And, and we've seen that, as you referenced, the PJM Reg D market, uh, you know, circa 2013 to 2016 was, was the, the largest storage market, certainly in the U.S., maybe even the world. And was really the the hotspot to develop uh, short duration energy storage projects. We're, we're talking batteries that were 
less than an hour of in duration, sometimes even 15 minute power cells were, were being used for, for systems there. And shortly uh, or, or soon after that, that market became saturated, effectively the limits of, of those tools to, to manage the, the short-term deviation between supply and demand, the limits were reached. The PJM really didn't need much more capacity. They also did modify some of the settlement and pricing rules, but effectively that, that market has sort of fallen by the wayside. And we're seeing similar trends play out in other markets. You know, Texas is, is a, another place ERCOT, where their fast frequency response market has, has been a very attractive opportunity for energy storage assets. But now we, we are beginning to see signs of saturation there. GB going back to the dynamic suite, we're, we're just 2023, you know, uh, about two years into the history of these markets, we're already starting to see them saturate rather significantly. And so I, I think these markets will always be around, of course, and, and, and there will always be relevant opportunities for revenue for energy storage systems. But circling back to, to why I haven't really focused on them in this conversation, in the context of co-location, again, I circle back to the who, who's your audience when you're trying to get a project approved. The typical investment committee of a solar or wind project, they're thinking about a 40-year asset. And if you bring them now an asset that you want to include in this investment decision that is going to make all its revenue from markets that might only be a few years old and have a history of saturation and unpredictability in terms of their revenue profile, it, it might be an uncomfortable conversation with the investment committee. And so that is where the focus on the merchant or, or, or wholesale economics starts to make a little bit more sense. The long-term durable value that energy storage can bring in the context of a co-located project tends to, to fit more nicely with the long investment horizon of your, your solar or wind asset. And again, that's not to say that we exclude revenue opportunities from these balancing or ancillary services. They're certainly present and we typically will characterize them as different upside scenarios in the near term. But when we're thinking about developing a, a co-located solar plus storage project for 40 years, it really does come down to what is going to be the long-term value of flexibility. And mm. how does having a, a co-located energy storage asset give you that flexibility and, and effectively improve the, the overall investment prospects? Okay, thanks for that. So putting this all together, what kind of penetration does co-located renewable storage facilities have today? And then given, I guess, all these reasons that you're talking about in terms of enhanced economics, lower risk, you know, more optionality around returns. Do you see that becoming almost the standard as we go forwards? In terms of it becoming the standard, I, I think in many markets already it already has. So certainly as we as we discussed in Kaiso, any project that's entering the, the interconnection queue today is is essentially being co-located. Uh, at least on the solar side, you know, wind is still a, a bit of a different story, uh, and, and we can talk about that. But I, I think co-location is certainly still relevant for for wind projects. But you know, when when we look at the non-ISO West in the U.S. market, so so fully regulated markets, it's seventy percent of all projects entering the interconnection queue are co-located. So I, I think it it really this trend cuts across markets, ISO, RTOs, as well as fully regulated markets. Here in Europe, certainly a little bit further behind. I, I think there's a couple of different reasons for that. It, it hasn't been as big a focus in many of the, the CFD schemes, contract for differences schemes, or the other feed-in tariff mechanisms that have been present in the European markets. I haven't really focused on uh, valuing flexibility or energy storage. Similarly, there's been a healthy PPA market for pay as produced products, which enable 
solar or wind projects to, to earn a healthy return for, for any energy they're generating, regardless of, of when it's being delivered. But we're, we're starting to see that change. We're, we're starting to see governments across Europe really putting more of an emphasis on flexibility in the way that they're doing that is they're, they're giving preference or priority to co-located projects. You've seen that in, in Greece, where effectively you could skip a few steps of the interconnection process by presenting yourself as a co-located asset. You're seeing this same situation play out in Portugal, where there, there was a priority given to projects that were, were bidding as, uh, as co-located for, for the, the, the few grid connections that were available. So the idea really is, we need more flexibility. We need renewables to be able to play at different times uh, to support the grid. And the mechanism to achieve that has conveniently been energy storage. And whether it's standalone or, or, or co-located, it, it can really help make a, a huge difference for increasing that renewables penetration. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, the, the two different genesis of the market, right? In Europe, you had huge governmental support, European Union support for deploying renewables and making those economically really attractive over the last 15 years. A different story in the US. And yeah, and, uh, you know, and, and seeing how sort of a, a more efficient market has led to a, arguably a, a better solution earlier that Europe's catching up on. That's just a bit of my own economic bias there. <laughs> now, of course, I, I can't ignore that there was, of course, pre-IRA, the, the ITC, the investment tax credit, was eligible for energy storage systems that were co-located with renewables and effectively promised to, to charge a majority of, of their energy from the renewable asset. Then you could apply the investment tax credit to the the energy storage component. And, and that, of course, was one of the maybe the biggest drivers of, of co-location. But you know, now in the post-IRA world where energy storage has its own tax credits and that limitation is no longer applicable, you know, we're certainly still seeing that co-located sites are, are the, the preferred method in, in many markets across the U.S. So can't let yeah, them yeah. can't let the U.S. get away yeah, too too easily. Distortions uh, all over the place. Yeah, my, my, my wrong. <laughs> um, so let's just finish up on, I guess, on on Pexapark and, and the contract piece of this, because you you sort of highlighted throughout the ever growing complexity and solutions needed to be able to make these uh, co-located facilities economic and, and capture the, the upside, the optionality that we've been talking about, whether you, for whatever reason or whatever part you're playing in this, whether you're an energy manager or whether you're just a d developer, or whatever it might be, it, how drastically and dramatically or if at all are power purchase agreements changing and how challenging is it to try and get a price for them, which is obviously a key part of Pexa Park's advisory role? More broadly on PPAs, it's definitely been a... a very dramatic few years, as, as uh, you know, anyone will will recognize the the just volatility level of volatility we've seen in in European energy markets has thrown many many markets into quite a turmoil. Uh, we we've seen a big resurgence of PPA activity just in 2023 after maybe somewhat of a pause in 2022, while many participants sat on the sidelines to sort of wait and see how things would play out. But in terms of pricing out PPAs, our process has has remained consistent and, and rather reliable with respect to valuing these forward contracts and, and using that then to layer in the various risks that you have to manage as a renewable asset. So that that capture risk, the volume risk, and pricing that out and then determining what the fair price of a, a pay-as-produced contract would be. And I guess one of the changes you know, I'm seeing from my vantage point is that these risks were always present, but we've we've now just had the black swan events where where these risks have have manifested in their most extreme case and now we know that that can happen and the 
willingness to to take on that risk is is starting to change on both sides of of the table whether you're the the producer or consumer side so we we see those risks starting to be something that we have to price out more cleanly and and we have to determine how to manage that's that's where pexapark comes in with not only our storage and, and flex tools, but also our portfolio assessment and analysis. We, we have a team here that really looks across a entity's portfolio to determine really what's the most optimal mix of solar, wind, energy storage projects across markets. How do you optimize performance when you think about these particular type of risk events that they could occur and really any one market or across all markets. So that's that's become a very important relationship we have with our clients is, is looking at what opportunities do we have to mitigate risks either within the PPA or within the portfolio of, product, of projects itself. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, <laughs> as we said, we need to get you back on talking small modular reactors. But it's a you know a fascinating snapshot of what's going on and some of the decision points, the economics and the, the challenges around actually solving for intermittency and, and, and really driving renewables through the, the grids. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and, and really enjoy the podcast. Uh, it's It's been a great way to explore the the edges of of a lot of uh, concepts and and hopefully i've been able to to add a bit to your catalog here in in the the very nuanced and niche space of of, uh, energy storage co-location thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show please give us a positive review on apple podcasts or spotify to find out more about hc insider and hc group a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.